This week's show is brought to you by... And the winner is the 80s Cruise. Hey, take a seven-night cruise with Brad, me, and 2,000 other crazy 80s fans on board the Celebrity Summit. The ship sails March 2018 with host Rick Springfield and a ton of bands, including Loverboy, Mike and the Mechanics, uh, Berlin. Uh, Brad, help me out. Okay. Uh, how about Thomas Dolby? The Tubes. Lou Graham. <sighs> the Voice of Foreigner. The one and the same. Plus Billy Ocean. And when's the last time any of us had a chance to see him perform live? Oh, yeah. And Nina, Mark, and Alan from MTV, they'll be back. Oh, by the way, I'm so still floored by your MTV host outfits for costume night this year. So good. Oh, thanks, Steve. Just remember, a cheap wig ties it all together. (laughs) Just head to www.the80scruise.com to start your reservation. But please use the promo code STUCK to help save 1000 or more on your cabin so you have more money to buy Steve and I drinks. (laughs) Plus, you'll be invited to watch Brad and I record a podcast with one of the musical guests from the ship. No drinking wild turkey until the recording is done, right? Uh, Did you mean that day or tonight? Uh, both. Uh, okay, whatever you say. Time to start the show. Travel back in time to the 80s. Reliving the advice. Carpe diem. Seize the day. The comebacks. Why don't you take a picture? It'll last longer. <laughs> and the technology. Are you telling me that you built a time machine? What of a DeLorean? Because just like you, we're stuck in the 80s. Can you say stuck in the 80s? Hey, hey, welcome to Stuck in the 80s. It's your host, Steve Spears. And B-Rad. And today we tackle the topic of movie remakes in the 1980s. Whoa, this is heavy. There's that word again, heavy. Why are things so heavy in the future? Is there a problem with the Earth's gravitational pull? Today we're joined by Gail in D.C., who, unlike Hollywood, is not out of ideas. Hey, guys. How are you? It's good, good. Good to have you. I'm glad to be back on the show. Well, this topic today was your idea, so we're really excited because for some reason lately we've become infatuated with the idea of Hollywood remakes. And and on the blog, we have been really critical, I guess you could say. Well, you couldn't. Of of Hollywood and the fact they're always remaking 80s movies. I think we would call you a boo bird, Steve. (laughs) Uh, Not always, but sometimes. But but I think what's kind of surprising is when I started doing my homework – a lot of the movies that we love from the 80s are, in fact, remakes of movies that are made sometimes like 40 or 50 years before and sometimes maybe like three years before. Yeah. Hollywood has been out of ideas for a long time. Or maybe I should say, to be kinder to the industry, Hollywood knows a good idea when it sees it. Right, right. So um, this idea kind of popped up back in the day when we did a we did an interview with um, Steve Pink, who was the director of... Uh, hot tub time machine. And oh yeah. He and I got into a side conversation and I don't know if it made it into the podcast or not where I was asking him about remakes and how like, kind of, and he could, t- he could kind of tell that I was upset by the idea that Hollywood was doing remakes of eighties movies. And he's like, you do realize of course that so many of the movies that you love are actually remakes. I'm like, 
sure I do. And he started naming them off. And <laughs> I was shocked. And so a few months ago, I did a, um, a little bit of research and I found that like, I found a list of six, I think it's 60 or 70 movies from the eighties that are in fact remakes from earlier times. So we're going to talk about all 70 of those today. <laughs> right. This is a f- special five-hour show. Um, <laughs> I hope everybody's wearing uh, adult pampers. But no, what we'll each do is we'll each pick one movie um, that we kind of personally identify with from the 80s that also happens to be a remake of, of earlier years. And we'll tell you about both movies. So, uh, Brad, why don't you get started? Okay. Steve, Gail, my movie that I want to talk about this week that is a, a remake of an earlier movie is Down and Out in Beverly Hills. Ah, oh, Matisse, what a lovely dog you are. Such a pretty dog. And such pretty eyes you have. Something's bothering Matisse. And Matisse is very angry. The dog is a loser. Oh, what a way to talk about a beautiful dog like this. What a way to talk. He's just disturbed and angry. Has there been something new in the household, some new living arrangement? We have a house guest. How long are you staying? He's staying as long as he likes. And if the doggy doesn't like it, then the doggy can find new arrangements. Down and Out in Beverly Hills is a remake of Jean Renoir's 1932 film, Budo Saved from Drowning. I won't even attempt the French version in spite of my <laughs> two, two, years of, two years of high school French are long washed away by all the gin. Um, and that movie is based on the René Fachois play of the same name. If that director's name sounds kind of familiar, maybe you had an art history class or walked into a museum that you thought was a convenience store, Steve, uh, because <laughs> Jean was the son of Auguste Renoir, the renowned French artist. Uh, he helped develop the Impressionist style. Nice. I have not seen the Renoir film. It's from 1932, and my projector is broken. But uh, <laughs> that movie is is said to capture kind of a, a look and a feel and a time in French life, which I think is similar to Down and Out in Beverly Hills. I think that also really captures the 80s look. Um, I have not seen that much salmon furniture in one room in a long time. Um, it's not quite as over the top as um, the other movie in Bette Midler's Rich Wives of Los Angeles uh, series, uh, Ruthless People. But it does it does have the kind of essence of it. And maybe it's a little truer because the the house in Ruthless People is just so completely over the top. But this particular film was directed by Paul Mazursky, uh, starred Richard Dreyfuss, Bette Midler, and Nick Nolte. What do you two remember about this movie? Not much. It was a long time ago that I saw it, and I do not think I've seen it kind of in recent memory. I remember it being pretty dark. Is that right? Uh, um, yeah, sort of. It's it's a strange take. Um, it's. I watched it again, and like you, Gail, I hadn't seen it probably since I saw it in 1987. No, I'm sorry, 1986. But uh, it's... It doesn't. I wouldn't say it holds up really well. the The characters are a little bit shallow, but the the main character, Dave, is he's kind of the whole movie. Um, the rest of the characters are kind of cardboardy in a lot of ways. Cartoonish, yeah, yeah. I I remember seeing this in college. Like when I was in college, I mean, you went to maybe a movie, maybe every three months or something like that. Like you did, it was, it was a, it was a hassle because there were no cineplexes near the, the college. This is before the screen boom of the, right. Well, the I don't think there's even today. If you went to, had a 40 plex. I haven't, I haven't been to, to Gainesville in like 15 years, but if, if, um, 
if I were there, I, I doubt there's any cineplexes near campus. It was still like a hike, yeah. and you had to know someone who yeah. had a car. So, like, if you were going to make the journey, you, you you had to have a pretty good selling point. And for me, I think with this one, it was the cast because you know, I mean, you can't really go wrong with Dreyfus, you know, Bette Midler, and Nick Nolte. But the the <laughs> I remember seeing it, and the, the the things that come into my mind first were great soundtrack because it opens up with Talking Heads once in a lifetime. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so I'm, I'm automatically hooked, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm automatically on board, but the scene that kind of, um, sticks in my head is Richard Dreyfus running around the house going, call 911, call 911 <laughs> with the phone in his hand. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I remember thinking, I mean, this came out in late January of 86 and I, it was number one for a month at the box office. And I remember at the time thinking, you know, something is wrong with American movies right now if this is number one for a whole month. I had somehow in my head thought that this won some Academy Awards, but it did not. I'm happy to report. Um, So, you know, again, I find myself uh, talking about a Richard Dreyfuss movie. It's a a theme around here this month, I guess. But uh, the plot revolves around Jerry Baskin, a homeless man played by Nick Nolte, who after his dog leaves him for someone who can actually feed him, he tries to commit suicide in the backyard of uh, Richard Dreyfuss's house in Beverly Hills. Richard Dreyfuss plays Dave Whiteman, who's a a hanger magnate. He's made his fortune making coat hangers. Um, and which to basically to which he says, you know, hey, somebody had to do it. You know, if I if it can happen to me, it could happen to anybody. Um, and after he pulls him out of the pool, uh, he invites him to stay with the family for a while. And uh, you know, hijinks ensue. Basically, he he sleeps with every woman in the house. Uh, you know, literally, uh, and just you know, kind of fights off Dave's efforts to get him to go straight, you know, like yeah. tries to get him a job. You know, I could get you a job managing one of my trailer parks. And he's like, oh, that sounds like a real hassle. <laughs> there's just, there's this weird like side plot that I remember where he keeps bumping into people who swear they kind of know him from a previous career. Yeah. And it's never quite explained. Like it's like, well, he may have been like this, this muckety muck at one point. Because people keep talking to him and he keeps like slipping into it. But when uh, Richard Dreyfus asks him about it, he's like, oh, I don't want to talk about that. So there's this whole unexplained side plot, which which to me is annoying. Like if you're going to bring it up, then you better resolve it. Well, I think I think what that side plot is more about is how shallow Hollywood people are. Because oh. at the end of the movie, when um, when Dave finds out that he's sleeping with his 19-year-old daughter – Jenny, who is played by Square Peg's Tracy Nelson. Oh, my God. Woo-hoo. Yeah. Um, he freaks out and tries to drown him, <laughs> which is what Jerry was trying to do at the beginning of the movie. So it kind of brings it back around. So and French. After they, yeah. After they haul him out of the pool and they're, you know, it's the morning after the big, uh, you know, it, it, it gets this super tropey climax where Dave has invited some potential clients to the house so he can sign a you know nine hundred million dollar hangar deal with China and of course that's where all the shit goes down right everything goes down at that party um, and then he tries to kill his house guest Jerry but the next day when they're kind of all sitting around the pool kind of post gaming it like what the hell just happened uh, he basically is like yeah I made all that stuff up so what's so what's the difference then between the the eighties movie that we know and then the earlier original movie. Well, in the original movie, um, the Jerry character, the homeless guy, the you know the beatnik in that one, um, he 
is convinced he's sleeping with the housekeeper and they convince him that he needs to marry her. And so he gets married to her. And then at the end of the movie, after the wedding, he basically is, there's like a riverboat setting and he gets into a a rowboat and just takes off and is like, I'm free again. You know, I'm unfettered. Like, screw you, society. But in this one, at the end of it, um, Jerry, you know, spoiler alert, uh, Jerry was like, that's it. I'm leaving and I'm taking your dog with me. Like, that's the other side plot is that they have a dog that basically just hates everybody in the house but takes an instant liking to Jerry. Yeah. Um, and so the dog goes with them and he's like, oh, you know. Let me get you some here. We're, we'll live by our wits. So here, I found this tin of garbage and it's still got some pate in it. This is good stuff. And they're both down like on their knees starting to eat this stuff out of the can. And he's like, wait a minute. And he goes back to the uh, the Whiteman's house, which is like – and it's just this total sitcom ending where they're all just kind of like the little smile, like the half smile. Oh, this guy's totally taking advantage of us. But okay, you know. And he walks back into their backyard and back into their lives. And that's the end of the movie. Wow. There we go. I feel like my memories of that movie revolve mostly around Nick Nolte in the pool. It's been a while yeah. since I've seen it. Yeah. Well, and he I does spend feel, a lot of time in there. Right. And I also feel like that kind of shaggy Nick Nolte is – that's like the, the image I have of him from the 80s. It's not even so much the like kind of the police action movie Nick Nolte. It's this one that's kind of shaggy, sort of um, unkempt version of him. Yeah, kind of con artist, you know, his skill is surviving and he's very good at it, right. you know. Right. So in my research, I found out that Paul Mazursky, who also directed Moscow on the Hudson, um, which is a movie that I just cannot get into. Really? Um, he, wow. he also, yeah, I don't, I just, oh, it doesn't do anything it's, for it's, me. It's a difficult he, movie to, to love. Yeah. He also directed another movie that's a remake of a 1930s film that also stars Richard Dreyfus. Trivia question. Anyone? Anyone? Hmm. Um, no. Wait, wait, wait. It's a... Well, You're no. not going to get it. No, I'm not going to get it's it. It's a moon over Parador. Oh, my God. You know, I, son of a bitch. I knew that. That's a and remake you, you can... of The Magnificent Fraud. Yes. Yes. It's on my list. It's on the list of remakes. And I was just is watching it, really? it. I was just watching it the other night, the, the Moon Over Parandor, which is which is kind of a guilty pleasure. It's it's on Netflix yeah. right now. Or no, not on yeah. Netflix, it's on HBO now. Okay. Well, and and reading the plot for that, it sounds an awful lot like uh Sigourney Weaver Kevin Klein movie Dave. Right. Yes. So. Gail, what is your movie uh from the 80s that is actually a remake that we didn't know about? Okay, so my movie is 1987's No Way Out. Let's get out of here. My dad's not going to like that much. But what the hell? <laughs> His wife will be delighted. Is this something we should talk about? Nope. So No Way Out was actually a remake of a 1948 movie that was not set in the military world, but it was actually set in the publishing world. And that movie huh. was called The Big Clock, mm-hmm. and it was directed by John Farrow. So um, the 1948 version is actually set in the publishing world, but they have kind of similar plots. And if you remember correctly from No Way Out, basically there's a guy who has killed his mistress in the height of passion, oh. and he needs to cover up the mystery, cover up the murder. And so he frames somebody, an innocent guy who had had some contact with the woman. And 
it turns out that it's the same person who has been enlisted to help identify the killer. So the 1948 version took place in New York. In the publishing world, it starred Ray Milland, Maureen O'Sullivan, and Charles Lawton. And I have to admit, I have not seen this version. Um, but I did recently rewatch the 1987 version. So the oh, 1987 so version of No Way Out has Kevin Costner, Gene Hackman, and Sean Young in that same triangle. But this time, it's set in the military. So... Kevin Costner plays Tom Farrell. He's a Navy officer who's posted at the Pentagon, and he reports to David Bryce, the Secretary of State, who's played by Gene Hackman. So he meets Sean Young at a party, um, doesn't realize that she's also involved with uh, David Bryce, the Secretary of Defense, and gets involved with her. And then he finds out later that she is seeing um, the Gene Hackman character. And Gene Hackman goes to her apartment one day and they have a fight and he pushes her over a balcony and she dies in one of the most um, really bad, badly done scenes of special <laughs> I have seen in a long time. Um, anyway, so Gene Hackman needs to f find somebody to peg this murder on because he can't admit that he's been having an affair with this woman because, of course, he's married and he can't admit that he killed her. So he concocts this Russian spy, and they find the negative of a Polaroid at the scene of the crime, and they decide that, that there's a person in this Polaroid. It's very difficult to see, but they're going to claim that the person in the picture is a Russian spy and that the Russian spy killed her. And then he asks Kevin Costner if he will be the one to figure this mystery out. Of course, not realizing that Kevin Costner is the guy in the picture and the guy who was having the affair with her as well, or have, who was you know dating her. So it all takes place um, in DC, and there's lots of the, the kind of tension ratchets up throughout the whole movie. And there's a mystery: is Kevin Costner going to be able to somehow prove that David Bryce is the one who murdered her before this negative gets identified? Before they're able to you know figure out from the negative that it's him in the picture. So the, the tension's ratcheting up. Um, it's really fun to watch this movie if you're from DC, because there are scenes of DC all over the place. And for the most part, they're extremely accurate. So, you yeah, know, I was going to ask about that as a resident. Does it, I mean, I haven't seen it. I don't think since it came out, but I love this movie. Yeah. The, so the locations are, it so, wasn't shot in Toronto. <laughs> no, it was actually shot in DC and it's shot in, on roads that I travel a lot. And, you know, roads that, are very familiar. There's a one scene where um, they're like fooling around in the back of a limo and they ask the guy to drive around the monument. So you see Show him go the around the, the Lincoln Memorial and drive around the Washington Monument and that's all accurate. Um, there's a lot of scenes at the Pentagon. I mean, I'm sure those weren't shot in the Pentagon, but the outward scenes look fine. Um, there's a ch huge chase scene where Costner is trying to track down these two um, hired assassins who are going to, they're off to go find Iman, who's the woman who is, uh, Sean Young's friend played by Iman and they're trying to kill her. So he ends up like chasing them and he gets out of his car in the middle of this freeway, which actually exists. And it's very accurate. And he's running through Georgetown and up the canal. And you're like, wow, that actually makes perfect sense. And then all <laughs> of a sudden they stick a Metro stop in the middle of Georgetown and there is no Metro stop in the middle of Georgetown. So anyone who's from D.C. and who has seen this movie, the first thing they'll tell you is there's no metro stop in Georgetown. It, and also, it kind of looked like a metro stop, but then the metro cars were different. It turns out they actually filmed the metro scenes on the Baltimore metro. But then he takes the metro and he gets off at this 
another stop that doesn't exist called the old post office pavilion. And he gets out and he's running through the old post office pavilion to try to get to Iman before they do. And what's notable about that is that's the building that has been purchased by Donald Trump and is now the Trump Hotel oh, right in downtown D.C. Oh, it's a very controversial building here in Washington for many reasons. So those two things, the fake metro stops, which drive native D.C. people crazy, are totally fabricated. But other than that, it, it's pretty accurate for D.C. And I, they, you know, I'm watching the cars driving around these old, you know, 1980s cars, which just look so old now when you see them. But yeah. um, it's, it's pretty accurate. So there's a huge twist at the end of this movie. And am I allowed to spoil a movie that came out in 1987? Well, we're going to give people the warning. If if you, if you haven't seen it and you're and you're interested in seeing this movie now, you know you know earmuff it for the next fifteen seconds while Gail tells you the the uh, the secret. The big reveal. So the, the big reveal is that in fact Kevin Costner is a Russian spy, and that this whole made up construct of the Russian spy was accurate, and that he has been an agent for Russia the whole time. So then you're wondering, you know, what was his motivation, and did he really love her, and here he was all over the Pentagon. So, you know, I was trying to figure out last night, like, how realistic is this movie? How well does it hold up, you know, so many years later? So, you know, there's obviously some things about it that do not hold up. The technology and this ridiculous dot <laughs> matrix printer that they're trying to get. I, I, I think it's the first time I ever saw Zoom and Enhance anywhere. Okay, yes. Zoom, Enhance, yeah. Zoom, Enhance. Yeah, it's it's pretty bad. And I mean, this this kind of old-fashioned, you know, I'm sure they were trying to show like state-of-the-art military technology at the Pentagon and these computers are like the worst like DOS system that you can imagine. <laughs> So the, the technology is terrible and the effects are pretty bad. Um, and like I mentioned, the scene where Sean Young like falls off the balcony is just – it's it's as bad as it gets. Hey, those but, Sean Young mannequins cost a lot of money. You know, they can only afford a couple of them. Right. But, you know, the sort of the intrigue of it is pretty – it holds up. And the fact that it's a Russian spy, sadly – is um, not that far from reality today. Like, you know, there's a lot of Russian sort of intrigue and espionage in the news right now. So it, yeah. I think that, you know, two or three years ago, we all would have laughed at the idea of a Russian spy in the Cold War and this kind of like faceless enemy. And now, sadly, it sort of is ringing all too true. So um, things have, have come back around, you know, 30 years mm -hmm. later. I, I think the acting is pretty good. The thing that actually drove me the most crazy about this movie watching it last night was the complete lack of women in any role of substance. Um, there was no women. There were no women leadership. There was The women were like sort of secretaries or they were kind of bumbling or they were the secretary of state's wife or it's Sean Young who's crazy in, in real life and in the movie. <laughs> and it's Iman who's beautiful but, you know, basically needs rescuing by Kevin Costner. And, I, you know, I just don't think that any movie today would could get away with that, and rightly so. so. The Bechdel test has failed spectacularly. Yes. So, Only actual Washington, D.C. today could get away with that so, so realistically. I mean, I remember yeah. seeing this movie in the theater, and I remember my reaction after the – you know, he is Ivan moment. I mean, my jaw hit the floor. You're I did a, not yeah, see it coming. I did not yeah. see it coming. I did coming. not see it coming. No way. Nobody did. No. It was, that part was crazy. And then, of course, you know, now I watched it last night and I had seen that, so it had lacked that that. Sure. It doesn't have the punch. Factor. Yeah. But it's really well done because there's no suggestion of that throughout the whole movie. 
But then like the very last scene, he's uh, or right before you find out he's actually Yuri, they show him at her grave, which makes no sense because mm-hmm. she's been dead for like like 12 hours. But um, <laughs> <laughs> he's at her grave and you see that he really is very sad about what's happened. And he's had to kind of, you know, suppress all this emotion since learning that she was murdered. Um, and so I guess you're supposed to see this inner torture of him that he's. You know, yeah. he wants to. He also wants to leave being a spy, and he's he's walking away from them. And they kind of pull gu- sure. a gun on him as he's walking out the door. And the the main Russian guys like, let him go. He'll come back. Where else can he go? Yeah. yeah. You know, so he's sort of trapped. Um, Russian accent. I'm starting to worry about you. Have you been watching the Americans, scale? <laughs> no, I'm not going to talk to you about my secret double life. Oh, that's so, probably anyway. good. It's a good movie. I liked it. Um, one thing that's kind of cool, that's interesting, is that both of the directors, the 1948 and the 1987, are both Australian. Huh. Oh, my God. I did not know that. Yeah, kind of interesting. From a from like a Kevin Costner fan standpoint, I mean, I, to me, this movie falls like right within his like hot streak. Yes. Where he was like doing no wrong. Oh, yes. yeah. He was on top yeah. of the world. This is pre-Bull yeah. Durham, right? Uh, um, it's about the same time. Somebody posted I, I posted on Facebook last night that I was watching it and one of my friends commented, Oh, that's before Kevin Costner got annoying. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't really get, water he didn't get annoying until the early nineties. Early nineties is when it started to After I, I think it started to hit. Oh yeah. 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 He got a little self indulgent. Well, don't we all Yeah, no, he's good in this movie and he's pretty hot. Um the uh the <laughs> I started reading up that's a little bit. That's what we were really looking young. for. Yeah, there's a you know he's got his shirt off in a few scenes. That wasn't too bad. The Sean Young stuff. So I remember people saying that she was crazy, and that she was crazy in this movie and crazy in a lot of other movies, and that she sort of never made it in Hollywood because she had this reputation of being really hard to work with. So I found this interview with her from about three years ago, and she's like an anti-vaxer and a um, conspiracy theorist, and she has all these kind of fringe views. And I guess I can. I, it, the article definitely confirmed for me that she's crazy. <laughs> Not to get too political on the podcast here, but um, no, yeah. you know anybody who's anti-vax is anti-science in my book. And listeners, if right. you disagree, right. with me, please email me directly. Yeah, they, and can, we'll discuss they can pretty it. much find another podcast. We, point, we can discuss that. Yeah. So anyway, I, I I recommend giving this movie a look um, again if you haven't seen it in a while. And someday I'd like to try to see the 1948 version. And I'm curious to know, is there a twist at the end of the 1948 version the way there is in this one? You know, how does he get out of being framed? And then is he really who we thought he was when we talk about this guy who's been sort of, you know, pegged to or, be the person? Or is the, movie, is the movie told like in retrospect like No Way Out is? I mean. Right. It's. Yeah. There, that's it's it's unique in that way as well. Let me talk about my movie. Uh, this is an unlikely choice. Like I had a lot of movies to choose from because I've been I've been writing some blog items on this for a while, but I ch- ultimately chose the 1989 movie Always, which by the way is on Netflix right now. So if you kind of want to go back and revisit it, or if you never saw it in the first place, seems like good timing. But you want to know a funny thing? Once I got up there, I felt like a veteran. I couldn't do anything wrong. I, I, I flew that plane like Fats Waller flies his piano. I circled the field, 
And then I found a perfect side slip right into the wind, and I came in just like a leaf. That's right. And you think you did all that by yourself? Well, there was certainly nobody else up there with me. There was, Pete. There was? There was someone like you. And behind him, there was someone else. Maybe someone who learned what he learned on a motorized box kite. And if you think of it, you knew that. But you had a different word for it. I did? What word? It's not flyers and piano players and everyone else count on. They reach for it, they pray for it. And quite often, just when they need it most, they get it. It's breathed into them. That's what the word means. Spiritus. The divine breath. Inspiration. Yeah. And now it's your turn to give it back. Always was directed by Steven Spielberg. This is important. Um, starred Richard Dreyfuss, Holly Hunter, and John Goodman. It is a remake of a 1943 movie called A Guy Named Joe. Hmm. And here's kind of why it's important. Um, when you hear the name Spielberg and Dreyfuss, what movie comes to mind first? Jaws. Close Encounters. Uh, Brad's right. <laughs> well, I mean, they're both right. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> when Spielberg and Dreyfus were making Jaws back in 1974, uh, they came to an understanding that they both really knew this movie from 1943, oh, really? A Guy Named Joe. Huh. They were both huge fans of it. And so they started, like, trading quotes from the movie during the making of Jaws, like little insider jokes to each other during the filming. It continued throughout the years. When you when Spielberg does Poltergeist, and they're on, there's one scene where the TV's playing, the movie that's playing is a guy named Joe. Hmm. So they came to this agreement back in the early or mid-'70s that sometime they would try to get back together and try to do a remake of this movie. And hmm. so they, and it would happen, it would take until the late 80s that Spielberg would have the cred, which surprises me, it took that long, to make a new movie. And so he makes it, and it's called Always. Now, the plot remains the same. It's, 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 a, it's a movie about flyers. In the original movie, it's World War II, and they're fighting the Germans and the Japanese. In 1989, they're not, there's no longer a war. In fact, there's, there's, an ongo- there's like a little joke in there from John Goodman about how, you know, if this were, you know, if we were doing this in, the war, in a war, it would be heroic, but it's not heroic. And um, the idea being that in 1989, they're not fighting the Germans and the Japanese. They're fighting forest fires. So these are guys who are trained to, to swoop down on fires, drop the water, put out the fires. The uh, main character, Dreyfus, in the uh, – the, the one we know so much, and then um, Spencer Tracy in the original. They're both like daredevil pilots who really kind of like they, – they take personal risks to get the, the shit done. And so they both end up like taking chances that nobody would normally take, um, that they don't really need to take. And ultimately, it costs them both their lives. When they die, they find out that there is a afterlife where they are expected to become – um, spirit guides to future pilots. Hmm. In both cases, they become spirit guides to pilots who fall in love with the girl that they were in love with. That seems perverse. So, 
It, it does seem a little perverse. The afterlife and, um, is a cruel mistress. Yeah, well, like the real life's all that much better. Oh. Um, <laughs> so Always comes out. It's not really considered an 80s classic. It's not considered a classic by any means. It didn't really do that well financially. Uh, it didn't do that well with the critics. Roger Ebert of the Chicago Ton Times called it dated. Mm. Um, it has a 64% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which Roger is Roger Ebert loved my movie. Give <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. it four stars. It is one of those kind of weird movies, though, that when you watch it, because it means late 80s, for the, like in my life, though, late 80s, I'm an adult. I'm, I'm making a living. I'm like, you know, making a bare minimum salary. I'm trying to pay off my too expensive apartment. So, like, the idea of going to the movies to see something like this does, doesn't really occur to me. I don't think I saw Always until years later. Never seen it. I've never really? seen it either. Probably not. The, probably not the worst decision of your life. No. Um, but yeah, it's it's Spielbergian. I mean, this is the movie he's wanted to do since he was a kid. Yeah, and he finally gets a chance to do it with somebody else who appreciates it as much as he does. Yeah, that actually that adds some color to it that makes me more interested in it. So it's worthy to see. And like Holly Hunter, John Goodman, Richard Dreyfuss, they give great performances. But I think they're working from a script that, like in the eighties, we just don't really buy. Mm. But that being said, there's some amazing scenes. The whole idea is that Richard Dreyfuss is, is he's there in every scene, but he can only like contribute thoughts to the to the new pilot. So he can yell and scream, and some of it comes through. He can walk through doors, although they don't they don't really show that. I mean, the, he, Spielberg's smart in the sense that he doesn't use any special effects. He just it's real basic. Yeah. Um, and about halfway through, like you start losing your shit. Because it mean now it's starting to become personal where Dreyfus realizes that his girlfriend, the one he loved, but who who he could never say that he loved her, is now falling for this new guy. He doesn't want to let go. And so you start to become torn and mm-hmm. by the time it all ends, it all ends with him with the character walking away. Like the the person who dies and who becomes the spiritual advisor to these um new pilots. Ultimately, they do their goal. They inspire the young pilot, and they walk away. And when that happens, I'm telling you, it's like Niagara Falls, Frankie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can see where, as a you know, 21 year old, you might come at that from a different angle than, say, a 50 year old. Yeah, it's just important, really, to know that you shouldn't really watch it if you're 49 years old, about to turn 50. Uh, living by yourself in a two-bedroom apartment in Orlando by yourself with no friends and a cat who likes to bite you. Dude, you should move. That apartment is bringing you down. <laughs> I know. You know what else we should do? The Seggies. Ah, by the sound of the tone, it must be time for a reader mailbag. Brad, we have, I think, two emails this week. The first one is from a female listener. What? So she says. There's at least two of us. Edwina in Springfield. It's Anya in Greensboro. Why don't you take the honors? Hi, Stephen Brad. You're always saying how very few female listeners you have, but have no fear. Some of us are here. We just haven't written in. I've been a huge fan of your podcast for many years and started listening back in 2008. I should probably note that although I am stuck in the 80s, I was actually born in 1991. Missing the greatest decade by two years. Hmm. Hmm. Oh, all right. All right. Although I was a 90s baby, I was lucky enough to have a stay-at-home dad who spent his days raising me like it was 1985. Now, that's progressive for 1991, my friends. 
When I was a kid, we spent every morning watching Gem and the Holograms and the Thundercats and always danced around to his Bangles vinyl in the living room. In the afternoons, we'd sit and draw, and he would teach me how to draw the famous Art Deco hotels of Miami, coloring everything in Miami Vice pastels. And Steve, wow. as much as you dog on Three Men and a Baby, <laughs> that will forever be our movie. We watched it almost every day together when I was growing up. Did you only have one tape? What? No, no, uh, no PBS in your town? Sesame Street? Anything? She continues, as I got older, my love for the 80s never died. I am now 26 years old, and my apartment... Wait, 26? Seriously? 20. Oh, my gosh. Oh, shake my head. I'm Half not, our age. Let me, okay. let me try that again without the shaking my head here and telling you to get off my lawn. <laughs> <clears throat> I'm now 26 years young, and my apartment is covered in frame posters from great artists of the 80s and full bookshelves of vinyl records and classic movies. Hopefully, you've got something more than just 80 copies of Three Men and a Baby. I'm also lucky enough to have a boyfriend born in the 80s who loves the decade as much as I do. The first time we ever hung out, he played a playlist of Huey Lewis and the News in the car, and that was it. I knew he was the one for me. I owe it all to my dad, who is still stuck in the 80s, and I wouldn't have it any other way. Thanks for all the great memories. We both love your show. Signed, Anya in Greensboro. Wow. Nice. Gail, if you could go back to the 26-year-old version of yourself, uh, what would you tell her? Oh, I would say go take that job at eBay. <laughs> just do it someday it will be a household name and you will make gazillions of dollars yeah <laughs> that's, that's more it. depressing than the end of always <laughs> God, yeah. what was i doing when i was 26 uh, did i had i even met katie at that point yes we were dating we weren't married yet yeah things are you going were okay. married i was not married yet we married we got married well we got married right before I turned 27. Was it the Huey Lewis and the News playlist that did it? Yeah, no, it was not the <laughs> Huey Lewis and the News playlist that did it. It was my, uh, it was my charming good looks or something, and or my <laughs> wife's just, my wife's just, inability to see a creep when one's standing in front of her. Well, you just you just had your anniversary, right? We did, yeah, 23 years. You posted a photo from your wedding. Yeah. And I gotta admit, you look like you're 13 years old. <laughs> I know. I was such a baby face kid. It's funny because I, mean, I, it's, I see those pictures. I'm like, that's why I used to get carded when I bought beer. Yeah. Until you were 36 years old. No, seriously. Uh, we have a second letter. This one is from, oh, my God, our old friend Base Note from Chicago. I thought Base Note had given up on us, but he hasn't. Go ahead, Brad. Prove it. Okay, here we go. Base Note writes, hey, Stephen, Brad, the first part of your interview with Terry Nunn was great. When I saw the Regeneration Tour back in 2009, Berlin blew all the other bands off the stage. I believe I wrote a review for the blog stating that fact. Fact. Fact checked true. Terry has such a great stage presence and quickly establishes a fantastic report with the audience. It also doesn't hurt that she's still easy on the eyes after all these years. As an aside, I remember seeing Berlin on that tour and same thing, just blown away. Blown away. She was so yeah. good. The whole band. The band is still very tight, and Terry has not lost anything in her voice. I would love to see them in concert again sometime. I hope Steve gets a chance to do a face-to-face -face interview with her at the 80s in the Sand or on the next cruise. Anyway, I can't wait to hear part two. Oh, base note, by the time you hear this, you will have heard it, and you can name your next two children Steve and Brad, regardless of the <laughs> sex. Or pets. 
pets are fine. I'd prefer not a reptile, but maybe a turtle would be okay. He continues, kudos to Brad for his 80s obsession of Phil Collins' book, Not Dead Yet. I really enjoyed the book as well. I think what I liked most about the book was that he did not always portray himself in the best light. He was quick to point out where and when he screwed things up, especially in his marriages, and at the same time, he let his humor and natural personality shine through. I hope you can get some European stuck in the 80s fans to review his shows this summer. My 80s obsession has been Trevor Rabin. Is that right? Rabin? 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 We're going to go with Rabin. Remember him? He's the guitarist and songwriter who resurrected the band Yes in the 80s with the song Owner of a Lonely Heart and the album 90125. Oh, love that album. I've been listening to that album in Big Generator, Yes' 1987 release, a lot lately. I've also been listening to his 1989 solo album, Can't Look Away, which featured the single Something to Hold On To. It's a great album that I highly recommend. Over the past decade or so, he's been scoring films like Armageddon, Snakes on a Plane, and Disney's Sorcerer's Apprentice. He most recently was inducted with Yes into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Check out the band's performance of Owner of a Lonely Heart at the induction ceremony on YouTube. Right now, he's touring with John Anderson and Rick Wakeman in a new incarnation of Yes. There's also another incarnation featuring Stephen Howe and Alan White. That band is so... I mean, wasn't the 1980s, the um, 90125 album version of Yes, like there were two touring versions and they like they got together and made Yes Voltron and did this big tour and it kind of <laughs> combined, yeah, sort the, of, yeah. unified the tribes for a little while. Right. That band's always been like that. Anyway, Bass Now closes with kind words to us. Keep up the great work, guys. I will always be listening and faithfully stuck in the 80s. Your friend, Bass Note. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I was supposed to be there in uh, Chicago with Bass Note to watch that concert that night. Oh, that's right. Oh, my gosh. Does anybody remember why I was not? Yes. (laughs) The, uh, The epic breakup with Vegas Girlfriend. Which happened a week before that concert. Good grief. So I didn't go. Good grief. Yeah. So let's talk about something. It all comes back. Let's talk about something more cheery. Um, Gail, I think you mentioned you've read the Phil Collins book. What did you think of it? Oh, I did. I loved the Phil Collins book. Um, I actually did it on audio, and it's narrated by the author himself, which was great. Yeah, I feel like I spent 10 hours in the car with Phil Collins, which was awesome. Yeah, I loved it. It was uh, based on his right about, you know, him being very honest about things he's done wrong. Um, he talks about the demise of his marriages and, you know, he, he comes out looking pretty good in it. I mean, I think he I think he finds a way to portray himself in a pretty good light despite some of the things he did. But I actually loved just the music references. He talks a lot about the early days of Genesis, his friendship with uh, Peter Gabriel, about how, you know, he was getting so big and popular, like in sort of the mid eighties, kind of as, you know, like invisible touch was happening, but he also had these solo band, solo albums at the same time. And he, you know, it's funny, he says, like, even he was sick of himself, and he can appreciate now <laughs> how ubiquitous he was. Yeah. And the, the fact that, you know, he, this, it was like this juggernaut of fame that he couldn't, he couldn't control. Um, yeah. He talks about the Live Aid experience and how, you know, he was sort of, he sort of backed into the, you know, appearing into the two concerts and, was sort of embarrassed by the attention he got and everyone's, you know, talking about how great it was and he flew in the Concord. He's so tired and went from the two shows. Um, yeah. I don't know. I thought it was great. And uh, I love the backstory on a lot of his songs. I mean, I know you, this was probably pre-Brad, but you've done 
episodes of the show about Phil Col- depressing Phil Collins songs and you know the backstory about them and how so many of them are about no, breakups. <laughs> I loved those shows, but you know he he confirms all of that in this book. So um, I I highly highly recommend it. Really enjoyed it. I think my favorite Excellent. Phil Collins story is when he shows up on an episode of This American Life. I don't know if anybody else remembers this, but there's a woman that was trying to write a breakup song and somehow finds herself getting advice on how to do it from Phil Collins. And it was, oh it was amazing. I'll see if I can track it down. It was amazing. Oh my God, please do. <laughs> yeah. They're all about breakups. They're all about his marriages and his wives. Yeah. And it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. You know, his current wife is someone he was married to and then they got divorced and now they're back right. together. Right. Um, and he has a lot of health issues. Who talks about those? And he had went through a really bad alcoholic phase and uh, he's clean now, but he's got all these other like, back problems and these things that prevent him from drumming. And, and now when he tours, he tours with his son, who is his drummer. And he's really young. Like he's like 16 or something. Wow. But um, he's he, very he proud of his son. He doesn't have back son. problems yet. <laughs> Not yet. Yeah. But it's good. It's a really good book. Excellent. As always, we love your emails. Send them to podcast at sit80s.com. Yes, it's time to play the newest uh, Segi on Stuck in the 80s. It's time for uh, I Want My Mystery TV Song. Uh, we will play a snippet of a song <laughs> from the 80s. And if you get it right, you're entered into the drawing for the um, swag that we have been very negligent about sending out based on the uh, emails that I've been getting lately. Normally, I would so. say don't judge me, but at this point, I think it's you could judge me. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I know. I, it's my, I mean, this some week. people want the trucking hacks. Week. And those happening this week. I'm sending the bottle I mean, open. I'm going to try to. I'm, I'm trying to move right now, so it's like I... But the trucker hats are sitting like four feet from me. I can I can do this. So if only you give could us train your cat to pack it up. I can't right now. She's all she wants to do is drink my whiskey, which mm. is not good. Um, okay, pay attention. Here is our mystery TV theme song from last time. <laughs> Yes, that's Falcon Crest. Uh, Gail, did you get that? Yes, I was a big Falcon Crest fan back in the day. Came on after Dallas, Friday night, 10 o'clock, set in a Napa winery. Wow. Dang, Brad. Lorenzo I Lama. Don't think I ever watched this. It's on a Friday night. No, no, no. But see, yeah, I'm younger so. than you, so I wasn't cool enough to be going out on a Friday night. <laughs> oh, Gail, trust me. Gail, you <laughs> assume so much. You assume so, so yeah. much. No, Brad was working at the movie theater, helping other people that had dates. <laughs> Would you like some popcorn? Shall I dab my tears? Um, yeah. Brad, uh, read some of the winners. Winners this week include Todd in Minnesota, Billy and Paducah, Padre Paul, Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, David Fox, Douglas the General Arthur, Canuck and Callie, Tom wishing the apprentice hosts would indeed change jobs in Austria, Tim from Toadsuck, and Dave Augie August. Uh, Brad, spin the wheel. Let's find out who won this week. Uh-huh. 
And it looks like it's going to land on David Fox. You're this week's winner. So uh, send in your snail mail address, and we will send out. You get a choice. But I don't know that you get a choice anymore. We, all the trucker's hats may be spoken for. And that's a good thing. You want the bottle opener. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, you yes, want this. You like bottle openers. Take it. Strike me down. So anyway. Um, <laughs> that got weird. That's Total aside. Send it in and uh, we'll find out what's going on. Pay attention. Here's this week's mystery TV theme song. If you know it, email us at podcast at sit80s.com and tune in next week to find out if you're a wiener. We'll be right back after this commercial break. Get a little closer. Now don't be shy. You can get a little closer with Arid Extra Dry. Only Arid has a patent on this formula that fights wetness. No leading deodorant spray stops odor better. And now Arid has a new baby fresh scent. It smells, mmm. Get a little closer with the baby fresh scent of Arid Extra Dry. Arid fights wetness and odor. Now in a new baby fresh scent. And we're back. We have a few minutes left. It's time to play our favorite new game show. What's your 80s obsession? Brad, what is your 80s obsession? Oh, I'd like to take uh, listening to whole albums for 500, Steve. Um, after Bing. my re- <laughs> after my recent rant about listening to whole albums, I've been doing some of that myself. And after Jay Giles died, Jay Giles was the founder of the Jay Giles Band. I would say their biggest commercial success came with the album Freeze Frame. And I loved this album when I was a freshman. I mean, I think everybody in my school had a copy of it or two. Sure. And it just, it's another one of those albums where I hadn't listened to the whole thing in a long time. Uh, and it just takes you back. If if you had to describe the Jay Giles band, I don't think I would have, I I'm, would describe them differently now than I would then. And then it's like, oh, it's a rock band. And I'm like, well, kind of, that album kind of moves between these kind of straight out rock and roll songs and these really kind of lush you know, string arrangement backed um, ballads. Uh, but I just, it's a great album. And, you know, how can you go wrong with an album that has a song called Piss on the Wall? You know? <laughs> I forgot about that one, yeah. Kale, what is your 80s obsession? So my 80s obsession is what my 80s obsession was in the 80s, uh, Andrew McCarthy. <laughs> so <laughs> I, um, as some of you know, I'm a book blogger and I have a blog that I write reviews of fiction usually called every day I write the book. And, um, I go often to hear, uh, authors read from their new releases at a mm-hmm. bookstore near my house called politics and prose. So, uh, recently I got to go hear Andrew McCarthy read from his new book. He has a new YA novel that's young adult for those not in the biz. And he's written a book about a girl whose father, um, it turns out has a secret child from another woman that she doesn't know about until she's, you know, 15 or 16 years old and discovers she has this like eight year old brother. Hmm. So, um, you know, Andrew McCarthy obviously is the actor we all know from the Brad Pack movies. And in recent years, he has been a travel writer and he spent a lot of time writing for different publications about trips and travel and, he decided he had this novel in him and he wanted to write this book for a long time. He sort of had this premise going and it wasn't really taking off until like one day it struck him that he wanted to write it from the point of view of the girl as opposed to from an adult. So 
inspiration struck and he wrote this whole book and now he's got this, this novel out. So I went to hear him read from it. Um, there were a lot of people in the audience about my age, women, (laughs) (laughs) like they were hanging on his every word, but he was great. Um, I mean, he's very self, uh, referential. Like he clearly has spent a lot of time, you know, thinking about, uh, success and his self-worth and he, but he doesn't shy away from talking about the eighties, mentioned the movies and, um, you know, definitely came up. He talked about Molly Ringwald at one point and talked about St. Almost Fire. And of course that was filmed here in DC as well. So, um, it was, it was fun. He was funny and the book sounded interesting. I bought it. Uh, maybe I'll read it. I don't read a lot of YA, but I might make an exception for this one. But the most exciting thing was that afterwards he was signing books. So I went up to him and I, you know, a lot of people asked for pictures with him, which I'm proud of myself for not doing, but I did (laughs) tell him that, um, he and I share a birthday, which I've always been very excited about that, um, you know, that we have the same birthday. So we, we kind of, um, commiserated about the fact that our birthday is right after Thanksgiving and gets forgotten. Mm. And he was very sweet about it. So anyway, that's my eighties obsession, Andrew McCarthy. He wrote a few articles for one of the magazines that I, I work with. Oh, that Island's makes sense. Magazine. So, I mean, kind of cool. He'll be at uh, 80s in the Sand, by the way. He's one of the actors there. So that would be kind of nice. Yeah. I'll have to try to, like, not ask for fo- I, I never ask for photos with anybody, I don't think. It's kind of weird Yeah, I stepped way out of my comfort zone to ask for that picture with Tom Bailey. Yeah, But I sure couldn't resist. Did. I couldn't resist. <laughs> So um, here's my 80s obsession. It, it, it's not really a secret if you've been following me on Facebook because yesterday in Orlando, Berlin with Terry Nunn played at Epcot Center. And I wasn't going to go because it's like I know what the shtick is in um, at, at Epcot Center. They get all these bands to come in from like the 70s and 80s and 90s. And they, they do like three sets a night and they're 30 minutes long. Mm-hmm. 30 minutes. So you get like six songs. I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, man. They, I'm, like, I'm trying to – Right, right. So I'm 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 trying to pack up my place. I'm trying to move to my new lair and it's it's already like 95 degrees here in Florida. I'm like on a Sunday, I don't I don't really don't want to go, but I woke up that I, the whole night before the concert, I couldn't stop. Like I kept hearing all those songs in my sleep. Like no more words and the metro and masquerade. So I woke up and I said, "Okay, I'm going to go." So I went for the first time in my life, I ever went to Disney by myself hmm. and not exactly by myself because I knew that there was about 15 people from the eighties cruise who live in central Florida who were going to be there. And you know, we had a rendezvous point, but I, I, I kind of told them ahead of time, like, yeah, I don't think I can make it cause I'm on call for, for work and I'm trying to move and it's, it's bad timing. But I just, I couldn't, I couldn't resist it. And so that I went out that day by myself to see the show and we had the best time. I mean, the 15 or 20 of us, we, 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 we got VIP seating. Nice. And we sat third row and um, we saw the show. And after the second song, Terry goes, I understand there's a bunch of people from the 80s cruise here. And we all went like crazy. And we, we stood up and, and started cheering. She's like, oh, my God, you guys are all wearing the 80s cruise T-shirt, which we were. We were all wearing the purple T-shirt from the 2017 cruise. And then she went like and told like two or three stories to the whole crowd about the '80s cruise, and and then she did her set. And then when she, when she was leaving the stage at the end of her thirty minutes, she was like waving to us and blowing us kisses and stuff like that. It was really sweet. <laughs> That's awesome. And um, 
afterwards, people kept coming up to us like, what's this thing about an 80s cruise? Tell us all about it. I mean, we were like, we couldn't leave for like 30 or 40 minutes because people were just kind of circling around us, asking us about this trip. It was amazing. I know that right before we started this podcast, they were starting their final set at Epcot. Like mm-hmm. tonight was their final night at Epcot. So um, uh, I hope they had a good time. I, I know that they seem to really enjoy um, Disney and um, they, they were definitely playing in, in front of full crowds. So that's kind of nice. That's I mean, nice. it's not the same as the Asian cruise where we're all up on our feet dancing the whole time, but still it's, you know, it's a special thing. Pretty cool. Well, I'm glad that you went and hooked up with all well, I'm glad that you went and connected with all those people. That'll just make yeah, next year's cruise that oh much more God. fun. I know they were, they were, everybody in our group was so much fun. It's like, that's the thing that people never quite get about these trips. It's like, it's like, we, it's like a big fraternity yeah. or sorority, whatever. It's, it's a big family. It's friends you haven't met yet. Right. Yeah. You, once you meet and you hang out, you're, you know, you're part of each other's lives forever. So that was, that was so much fun to, to meet, you know, the people who live near me who were part of that experience. Anyway, hey, if you love today's podcast, do us a favor. Go to iTunes and write a review of Stuck in the 80s. Do a search for us. You might subscribe to, through us through iTunes anyway. We really appreciate it. It'll help us out. And if you don't like the podcast, well, then remember, we're called Retro 80s. And you can't find <laughs> us anywhere. So. Don't leave mad. Just leave. In the meantime, Gail in D.C., along with her would-be husband, Andrew McCarthy, uh, <laughs> Uh, B-Rat and myself we remain here hopelessly stuck in the 80s Stuck in the 80s is a class of 85 production special thanks to Check Battery Daily for our theme music and remember this is only an exhibition not a competition please no wagering